0: Calhoun's Folly. It snows at sea. Sometimes I forget that. Or I try to, anyway. Frozen white on an endless field of black. It feels alien out there when it's snowing. Maybe I'd feel differently if it hadn't been snowing that night. But it was. And I don't. And I'll never know otherwise. Dad was a crabber. A real man's man. Exactly the type you'd expect to find in some tiny Alaskan town. He captained a 60-foot ship that disappeared onto sea for weeks at a time. He'd be gone for most of October and then January, and we'd try not to spend most of the time waiting by the window. It was rough work, dangerous, and more than one man was lost every year. Not Dad, though. He always came home. From a young age, I wanted to follow in his footsteps, grow the bushy beard, earn the wind-worn skin, carry myself with the rolling steps of a man with sea legs. Dad refused. You're better than this. Smarter. This town is for folks like me, son, not like you. But I didn't want to be better, and I certainly didn't feel smarter. I wanted to be like Dad. We lived comfortably, and everything he did seemed... So cool. So every season, I'd beg and plead to go out with him, just to see what it was like. Dangerous, he'd say. Cold, wet, miserable. He could be a grim man, my father. I also worked on my mom and my three uncles, his deckhands who had been on his cruise since he'd gotten his own boat. Sometimes there was a fourth, but that was rare, and I'd never met any of them. Your father said no, Mom would say. Sorry, kiddo, my uncles would say. I only took it for so long. When I was 17, I put my foot down to dinner one night shortly before October. I'm going with you, I said. I know how to clean the cages. I can help haul and sort. I won't get in the way. Dad regarded me with a stone face, his fork and knife clutched in his hands. Finally, he sat back. His expression didn't change. You know how many men out there go missing every season, boy? Yeah, I think so. You know how many come home? Edward. Mom tried to cut in, but he kept staring at me. Well, I started up saying. A man a week is lost out there, or so they say. Seems about right by my count, Dad continued. Yeah, but you always come back. And Benny, Levi, and Dom but not Carl or Sergi or Christopher. And those were just my boat in the last decade. Go ask any of the other captains and they'll tell you the same. The water's unforgiving. One mistake and you're gone. Edward, please, Mom said more insistently, not at the dinner table. The boy wants to go, Carla. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. If you don't let me, I'll just sign on one of the other crews. I done it. Plead my final hand the threat I'd been holding onto for just this moment. Mom paled and looked pleadingly at my dad. She was always the worrying kind. Dad tugged the end of his beard sharply, an unhappy, angry gesture. No one will sign a greenhorn like you, he warned. They will. They'll see my name, know I'm your son, and they'll take me on. I said the words exactly as I'd rehearsed them in my head for so long. Dad dismissed me from dinner. Then, when I tried to argue, he slammed his fist on our table, making our silverware jump. There would be no more talk. I shoved my chair back and stalked to my room, where I left the door open a crack and waited. You can't take him, Edward, I heard my mom say not long after. I know, came his gruffly mumbled reply. You have to tell the others, spread the words. No one can take him on, not our Frank. He's determined, Clara, Dad said softly. You know what's out there. I know. Edward, better he's with me. Better he learn now. There were footsteps, and a door slammed, and I smiled. I'd won. In the few weeks remaining before season opened, Dad taught me all that he could. We went over the process and procedures, everyone's roles on the boat, and what would be expected of me. I was signed out of school, as were many boys my age, and I shadowed Dad everywhere he went. Mom sulked around the house, watching us with hooded, haunted eyes. I'll be fine, I assured her. She just hugged me in return. The morning of our departure arrived, and Mom clung to me and cried. You be safe, Frances, she whispered. Her grip was fierce. I will, Mom. You bring my boy back to me, Upper Calhoun. Mom twisted her hands in the front of Dan's wool sweater. He kissed her forehead, whispered something, and we were off. The boat, Calhoun's Folly, was moored among a hundred others like it. We were the first of our crew to arrive, and Dad laid me around to start preparing. My uncles showed up not long after. They clapped my shoulder and congratulated me on breaking my old man down, but I caught the curious, concerned looks they shot Dad out of the corner of their eyes. David was the last to arrive. He was a young man, a greenie, like me. Even still, he looked at ease crossing the deck toward us, and I felt a stab of envy. I hired him before you pulled your stunt, Dad said. We stowed our belongings in the quarters below, finalized the departure checklist, and we were off. The shore faded into a heavy mist behind us, and the sea opened up, gray water against a gray sky. The salt spray was like icicles against my skin, and I huddled against it in my parka. It was, as Dad had said, cold, wet, and miserable. I loved it. It snowed that first night. I watched the tiny flakes of white pass my porthole window in the spotlight Dad kept on to mark us. It was the first time I'd seen snow at sea. It was short-lived, a flurry, and I crept up on deck when it was done to see how much i collected on the boat. I was surprised to find Dad standing in the bow. His back was to me. His gloved hands clutched the rail. He was staring outward into the darkness. There was something about his posture, a rigidness, that... Kept me quiet. I didn't know what he was looking at. It didn't feel right to ask. He was very still, even against the unrelenting icy winds. After a moment, I turned around and slunk away again. Something told me it was best to leave him be. The strange nighttime behavior continued. During the day, it was business as usual, but at night, Dad would go up on deck after everyone else had gone to bed, and stare out to sea. I wanted to ask him about it, but he was less my father out there and more my captain, so I went to my Uncle Benny. Let it be, Frankie, he said. Some things are better left alone. He tried to keep his tone light, but there was a strange note to it. Not quite ominous, but not quite far off, either. My other uncles, who'd overheard, just nodded along and returned to their work. David, the other greenhorn, knew better than to ask questions. For two weeks, we sought out the spots Dad would feel best for finding crabs. My hands had grown dry and cracked, my lips were chapped, my skin felt rough and always cold. I pulled my weight, though, and was out beside the others every day for however many hours were needed. David and I got along well, despite my previous jealousy. He was good company when I wanted someone closer to my age to talk to. Sometimes we'd see other crabbing boats, but the sea was otherwise an empty, barren place. And Dad was getting stranger. His nighttime vigils had turned to prowls. Up and down the deck, bow to stern, his hands clenched into fists at his sides. Sometimes he'd pause, stare over to the side, and mutter to himself. The snow seemed to be getting heavier every night. I was beginning to worry about him, but I told myself that this must be his way. My uncles weren't bothered, after all. He was probably concerned about our haul, the weather, his crew. He was the captain. It was his job. We were truly out in the middle of nowhere the night had happened. We hadn't seen another vessel in days. Dad has become quieter. My uncles more somber. Only David seemed to remain the same. We had become friends and were in the cabin playing cards. When the others came in, we mumbled our hellos but barely looked up. Benny and Levi stood behind David, one on each side. Dom had stayed by the door. I only looked up when I heard Dad inhale slow and deep. David was pulled to his feet. He looked at my uncle's holding his arms and then at Dad. I'll never forget that uncertain smile on his face. What are you doing? he asked. Dad motioned for them to follow him and Dom held the door open. Dad, I started to stand. Stay here, Frank, he said without meeting my eyes. He walked out and David, who'd started to struggle, was dragged after him. Hey, hey, David protested. What the hell? I scrambled after them under the deck where a thick blanket of snow had built up. Dom rested a hand on my shoulder and gave it a squeeze. When I tried to shake him off, his grip tightened. Easy, he whispered. Dad, I shouted. He ignored me. David cried out, demanding again to know what was going on while he was half-carried in front of my father. They were standing beside the railing, waves lapped hungrily against the folly's side. Snow continued to fall in flat, heavy flakes. Forgive me, son, Dad said to David. He placed his hands on the back of David's neck, and the other two released him. David relaxed slightly like he thought this was some kind of joke. What's going on, Captain? Captain. The words had barely left David's mouth before my dad shoved him as hard as he could over the railing. David's surprised, frightened scream ripped through the night and followed him into the water. No! I tried to lunge forward, but Don held me in place. From below, there was coughing and sputtering, an attempt to shout through a throat frozen over. Dad stayed at the railing, staring down. His face was blank, expressionless. I shook Dom off and slid across the deck to slam into the railing. Dad caught me roughly by the collar before I toppled over. There was no sign of David. Only bloodless, white faces, dozens of them all around us, staring up from beneath the waves. Their eye sockets were empty, their mouths opened into furious, silent screams. Screams. The wind had picked up it whipped around us in a wild frenzy the snow was falling harder obscuring all but those terrible faces I wrenched my gaze from them and turned to dad I tried to speak to ask what was going on but nothing came out dad was jerking his head back and forth as if in denial he leaned over the railing and shouted down to the faces I gave you yours I did what had to be done The snow gave way to small, sharp hailstones. They fell like jagged marbles against the folly. I did my part! Dad yelled into the black water. What more do you want? My uncles were backing slowly toward the cabin door. The color had gone from their faces and they were trembling. I pulled my dad's arm, trying to get him to follow, to explain what was going on to me. The wind howled, its response. Blood For blood. Dad gaped, open-mouthed and horrified down at the faces. they twisted, still furious, but they appeared to be laughing now. I'd become a child again, afraid and uncomprehending. Blood rushed in my ears, my stomach rolled violently. I wanted to scream and beg my father to make the ugly, bloated faces go away. I held onto his arm, my fingers digging into the thick sleeve of his coat. No! I barely heard Dad over the roar of the wind and waves. Not my boy! Blood for blood, the rasping wind shrieked again. Dad looked at me. He searched my face. His expression was lost. He pulled me into a tight hug and then, before I had a chance to get my arms around him, he shoved me backwards. Uncle Benny caught me the last I saw my father was him climbing over the railing of the boat he swung his leg over and glanced back our eyes met and then he let go the wind died down the hail slowed and then stopped the sea calmed and when I ran to the railing and looked over my father and all those faces were gone It was a long trawl back to the port. I was despondent for most of it, lying in my bunk. My uncles took turns keeping me company. It was Benny who explained. Our land hadn't always been ours. Before the first European settlers that had belonged to the Inuit people, they had been fishermen like us and mastered the craft long before any outsiders arrived. When the first settlers started to appear, they formed a truce with the Inuit. They aided each other, saw one another their various skills, and attempted to live side by side. It lasted until crabbing became a lucrative trade. The natives knew the best spots and had time-honored skills while the settlers struggled. They convinced the Inuit to teach them, promising to share the wealth that the crabs were sure to bring to the community. For a time, it worked well enough, but greed has a way of taking hold. The settlers wanted more. More land for their growing families, more seed to hunt and more money. The Inuit demanded their fair share, though. After all, they taught these outsiders everything they knew. The settlers swore they'd make things right. They invited the Inuit to join them in their larger boats for the final hunt of the season. They called it a peacemaking venture. Most of the able-bodied men joined the settlers, believing their goodwill. None of them returned. The remaining tribes people were driven from the area under the threat of death. With little in the way of protection, they were forced to flee. In the wake of their loss and tears, they left a curse. Blood for blood. Every year, a sacrifice must be made by the fishermen to appease the spirits of those that still linger in the freezing waters. If it's ignored, tragedy will befall the town built on the ruins of the Inuit village. During years that they attempted to ignore the curse, disease and fire swept through the town. Every captain knows it. Every deckhand knows it. The Greenhorns don't. Hundreds of men come in droves to Alaska every year to try and make their fortune off of crabbing. It's a cold, wet, miserable job. Dangerous. No one is surprised when a few don't make it back. They take turns, I learned. Every year, the captains rotate. They take one or two men on, take them out to the open sea, and then they offer them up. They know the time is right when the snow falls hardest. There's a reason most don't sign on their children. Blood for blood. Love is the ultimate sacrifice. It was my father's turn that year. He'd hoped if he treated me the same way as any other crew member, kept his distance, I'd be spared. He'd thought they wouldn't know. Mom begged him not to take me, but he couldn't trust that another captain would throw me over. He promised her I'd make it home and kept that promise. I never went on another boat. I left home shortly after, moved far away from the ocean and the cold. They follow me, though, even now. Those awful pale faces. The pain and torment they endure. The pain and torment they cause. I dream of snow, of frozen whites on an endless black field, and I see them all. And in the middle of them, A familiar face, weather-worn behind its bushy beard, screams up at me from beneath the rolling waves. Swaddling Dark Spirits at the Gin Mill I stood outside the Gin Mill pub in Toronto, wondering if I was at the right place. It was dark inside, and the door was locked. Had I come too early? Liam, an old colleague of mine, had asked to meet me there after he'd learned I was in town for business. I was starting to get cold, and I was growing impatient. He'd said eight, hadn't he? It was half past and still no word. Just as I was about to leave, I spotted a chalkboard with the pub's logo in a little alcove next door. It listed the night's special with an arrow pointing to a black door that I hadn't noticed earlier. Not that it wasn't there the whole time, it was just innocuous, and my attention had been on the glass door of the glass storefront. I tried the handle and the door opened to a staircase leading to the second floor. I began climbing the steep, narrow steps boxed in by concrete walls, which blanketed me in goosebumps. My ascent up the creaky steps was punctuated by the sound and sense of a cold breeze coming in from the slowly closing door below. I couldn't help but feel a little apprehensive as I neared the top, but was pleasantly surprised when I turned the corner and saw the pub. It was warm. Not just Physically warm, but warm in its color scheme and atmosphere. From a gray and black staircase to the reds and browns and ochres of wood, bricks, and stone hearth. The transition was like driving through a snowstorm in the dead of night and then finding the comfort of your grandparents' house. Above the bar were hanging lamps that looked like old timey street lights, adding to the inviting ambiance. I was alone, except for the bartender, a tall young man with short brown hair standing behind the wooden bar. He greeted me with a nod, and then mentioned for me to sit as he finished wiping the counter. What can I get for you? he asked. I glanced at the menu, but I already knew what I wanted. There had been one name on the chalkboard downstairs that had caught my attention. Campfire Special, I requested. I didn't know what it was made of, but the name was alluring. The bartender nodded and turned on his heels while I fiddled with my phone to see if Liam had messaged me back. No texts, no calls, no messages. It wasn't like him to run late, but I supposed he'd gotten caught in Torontonian traffic. I looked up briefly and saw the bartender manning a miniature blowtorch, or whatever it is you call those instruments chefs use to make a creme brulee. He was roasting a marshmallow on a toothpick, which he then delicately placed along the rim of what I think was a champagne coupe full of a dark liquid. He set it in front of me, and I reached over to taste. As soon as the liquid touched my tongue, I felt a chill run down my spine. It might be more mysterious to say it was some sort of sixth sense, a warning of what was to come, but the chill was very literal. Someone had opened the door at the foot of the staircase, and the cold night air had raced against and beat the person to the top. I swished the liquid in my mouth, trying to identify its components. It was smooth, a bit bitter like a green apple, and thin. Gin with a hint of lemon, maybe. I could only guess that the black hue came from activated charcoal. Whatever it was, it was delicious and perfectly balanced. The creak in the steps drew closer and closer until the sound turned into footsteps on floorboards. I felt a shadow on me and more, out of instinct than necessity, I turned to look. Liam? He looked older than I remembered, older than the two-year span that separated us from our last interaction. It was something in the way his eyes were sunken in and how his smile lines had turned into deep gouges, as though they'd been drawn over repeatedly for emphasis like striking out an item on a to-do list. His skin was dry and pale, nothing like his normal oily complexion, and something else was off about him. It's hard to explain, but it was as though... as though he was surrounded by his own light source, which stood in stark contrast to the light in the room. I don't mean he was glowing, he definitely wasn't, but the yellows and reds in the rooms seemed incapable of penetrating him. Imagine watching a television show and seeing a black and white character suddenly appear on screen, with no one acknowledging the difference between them and the world in color. Or, I suppose in this day and age, a better comparison would be to imagine putting a sienna filter over a group photo, but for the filter to have skipped one person. Just one. Even though I wanted to question his appearance, I didn't ask him about it. Instead, I complained. You're late. I'm late, he answered. I looked down at my drink. If it were at all possible, I could have sworn the darkness had become even darker. The liquid had turned as black as the night sky outside the window, with swirls of deep ebony stretching circles from the sides to the counter like a spiral galaxy. I pulled the marshmallow from the toothpick and dropped it into the drink, hoping it would offset the darkness. Instead, it only added to it. My phone beeped from a text message, but before I could check it, Liam put a hand on my shoulder and sat down next to me. Thanks for coming. I shrugged. You look like you could use a drink. Allow me. I turned to the bartender, but he was gone. The counter stretched all the way to a brick partition with a broad archway dividing the seating area from the back room, so I figured he'd snuck out on a supply run or something. No one in their right mind would leave a bar full of drinks alone with two strangers for too long. Little did I know, the first I'd seen of him would be the last I'd see of him, and yet, every once in a while, I'd glance at the counter and find a new drink waiting for me. Guess we'll have to wait for round two, I said apologetically before I sipped for my glass. The sweetness of the floating marshmallow had seeped into the drink, adding a whole new layer to the taste. It reminded me of a burnt, Caramel coffee and its rich, almost woody flavor. I could feel Liam's stare locked onto me. There was a thirst in his eyes, but I couldn't quite put my finger on what kind. Have you ever watched someone die? Liam's question made me swallow down the wrong hole. I coughed. <laughs> I can't say that I have. Liam leaned closer. Have you ever wondered what it feels like? die? I finished my drink, and as I put the glass back on the counter, my fingers brushed against another. There were two drinks waiting for Liam and I, and I might have caught those red flags if I wasn't so preoccupied with Liam's bizarre line of questioning. I try not to think about that. Do you think you can feel it happening? Liam spun a finger around the rim of his glass. You can feel the moment the light fades from your eyes. It's like a veil falling. Somewhere in the distance, I could hear my phone ringing. Uh, good to know. I answered, nervously, reaching for my drink. I was no longer sipping from it anymore. I was guzzling down mouthfuls. I couldn't even explain why I was so scared. Liam's serious expression, his grave tone, the way the light refused to touch him. I don't know, something just felt wrong. Liam continued. It's cold and numb. Your brain shuts down the pain receptors one by one. They go in sectors like a city blacking out one block at a time. Death is the moment of panic when the light fades. That split second of worry stretching out for an eternity. I started on my third drink begging for the soothing effects to kick in, but instead of a nice buzz, I felt dizzy. That's a bit deep for me, man, I said, hoping I could shut down the strange conversation we were having. How's work? And in the empty panic, we seek out friendly faces. That's what having one's life flash before their eyes is about. Searching through a mental registry for people we know are in the afterlife, people we think will ease away the panic and fear. Great, I thought. He wasn't letting up. He went on. We're told in death we'll reunite with our loved ones. He paused briefly, taking a sip of his own drink. I didn't see him swallow, but when he opened his mouth to speak, it was empty. In a way, we do. In many ways, we don't. Everything, every one, becomes muddled together, not just humans. Everything that lives eventually dies, and they all go to the same place. I thought I heard my phone again, but the sound was warped. sounded far, far away, like it was in a completely different room and submerged underwater. In my peripheral vision, I could have sworn the night sky was reaching through the window with tiny little tendrils, but every time I looked properly, all I saw was a normal sky with flakes of snow gently wafting toward the earth. Liam inhaled and exhaled. Could you tell your mother from a blade of grass if your mother's soul was indistinguishable from grass? And then think how much grass there is. Every single blade was alive once. They're all there. Could you find your mom if she was submerged in an ocean of grass? And the grass and she were just blackness. I sighed. Listen, Liam, you're kind of freaking me out. They're all muddled together. Is this some sort of late Halloween prank or something? Because it's not funny. No one stands out. It's all just the mass. A wriggling mass of chaos, fear, panic. Soon, there's no you and them. There's just the mass. There's everything and nothing folded into one. I stood up, but I felt like I was walking on the legs of a newborn foal. I gotta go, I muttered. You'll understand soon, Liam said. The unnecessary inclusion of the word soon pushed my discomfort over the edge. The pub didn't quite look as inviting anymore. The warmth from earlier had been tainted somehow by Liam, his desaturation bleeding into everything. The lights were bluer, the wood grayer, and the temperature colder. I had to get out of there. I could tell Liam was still talking to me, but I didn't listen to a word as I bolted down the stairs, taking them two at a time. I think he was still going on about the mass and darkness and chaos, I don't know. I felt instantly safer as I passed through the threshold. The world became vibrant again, or as vibrant as a dark, snowy night can be. I checked my phone and saw I had a text message, one missed call and one recorded message. The text was from Liam, and it simply read, Sorry. Almost there. I played the recorded message. Liam's voice greeted me apologetically. He sounded lively, completely different from the deadpan tone of the Liam I'd just spoken to upstairs. I can tell you what he said verbatim, because I've listened to it so many times I know it by heart. Sorry. (laughs) Still on the 401. Damn snow. Traffic's clearing up. I should be there soon. I'm so sorry to keep you waiting. First round's on me, okay? His car roared as he accelerated, and it was in that moment that I saw the chalkboard by Jen Mills' door. Liam's continued apologies faded into the background noise. The white, chalky words, closed, family emergency, made me stagger backward onto the sidewalk. A conveniently placed lamppost keeping me from falling into the street. I was trying to process everything, only vaguely aware of the screech of tires and the sound of buckling metal coming from my phone. There was groaning, there was low breathing, and then there was silence. I looked up at the second floor window. I saw the faintest of blue glows coming from inside like an afterimage on a television screen, and in that light stood a dark, vaguely human-shaped mass staring back down at me and then the light blinked out of existence. It followed me home from the haunted farm. Today, my friends and I started celebrating the Halloween season by going to a haunted farm off in the outskirts of town. I use the term haunted loosely, because this place is really just a scaled-down theme park that's been in the region for over 20 years. I don't scare easily, so I wasn't expecting much from the visit aside from a bit of light-hearted fun with friends, who would have thought that after an evening of cheap jump scares and screaming mostly to be polite, I'd find myself sitting in my bed, genuinely shaking with fear. I certainly didn't, yet here I am, all because of something... And followed me home. Whenever a car drives down the street, I can catch glimpses of it slowly crawling down my neighbor's house and towards mine, as though toying with me. It all happened because of that damn farm. We arrived at the farm late in the afternoon. It was nice out, not too hot, not too cold. The farm was neat, though. It wasn't overly spooky-looking in the light of day. They'd built a few old Wild West-style houses, they decorated little pumpkins and giant spiders, had a few creepy mascots walking around, and sprinkled demonic baby dolls where they saw fit. In the daytime, this place was a playground for kids. I saw more bouncy houses and face-painting stations and scary attractions, but I expected things would change once the sun went down. My friends and I headed out to do the corn mazes while they were still open, and then headed to their food trucks for supper. By the time we were done eating, it was finally dark out, and the toddlers had sprouted into teenagers. As expected, the park looked a lot creepier at night. They turned on their fog machines and colored lights to give the place a surreal atmosphere. The mascots had changed their makeup from a sort of menacing but still friendly to sort of demonic, with a few vampires and masked witches thrown in for good measure. It was fine, not all that scary though. I'm not trying to make myself out to be some unshakable badass or anything, but I honestly don't scare all that easily. I'm not really susceptible to things that I know aren't real. Creepy music and plastic hatchets just don't work on me. You could blame my time hanging around no sleep for the desensitization, but the truth is, I've always been pretty numb to horror. I'm more afraid of practical things like being stuck in a line for a haunted hayride for half an hour with a bunch of rowdy 13-year-old kids screaming profanities to try and outshock one another, splinters, disgusting porta-potties, the first and last of which I experienced at the farm. Uh. My friends and I walked around and tried out different attractions. We did the aforementioned hayride, the witch's coven, and the demonic funhouse, which was fun for all the wrong reasons. See, the funhouse was pretty tame, all things considered. You walk your way through the world's most straightforward maze, and from time to time, a creepy clown appears out of nowhere and kind of shuffles behind you and follows you for a bit. I can see how that might be a bit unsettling to kids, but, like, these clowns were all actors, and they weren't allowed to actually touch anyone, so there really wasn't anything to be scared of. That didn't stop this one chick from breaking down outside the attraction. This 20-something gal totally lost it. She was sobbing in her boyfriend's arms, and I couldn't help but laugh as we walked past her. Sorry, but if you can't handle a clown standing next to you for half a second, maybe you shouldn't be going onto a demonic funhouse. Just saying. Check yourself before you emotionally wreck yourself. It was getting late, and we still had one major attraction to go to. According to our map, it was the scariest of them all. Four chainsaws out of four. Having heard screams of abject terror coming from that side of the park, I was really looking forward to seeing what all the fuss was about. Along the way, my friend pointed out a cemetery with a half-opened gate, and not a soul in line to go in. There had been a 30-minute wait for all the other attractions, but this one was as still as a grave. Pun intended. Should we go in? She asked. Might as well, I replied. The door squealed as we opened it the rest of the way. Oh oh boy, someone had left the fog machine on overnight. The curtains of smoke were so thick I couldn't even see my own feet. I grabbed the friend behind me in front of me just so we wouldn't lose one another in the mist. That's how dense it was. I didn't really like the cemetery. For one thing, there wasn't much to it. A few tombstones here and there, a crypt, some gargoyles, but overall it was just annoying. I kept tripping on exposed tree roots and fake plastic bones. It was a pain in the ass, but it was worth it for the one genuine scare I got all night. I was turning a corner. I felt something grab my leg. I let out my only authentic scream all evening because I had no idea we weren't alone in the cemetery. The Vogue had done a great job hiding this guy in a pitch black morph suit crawling around on all fours. I only saw him because as I screamed, I also flapped my arms around like a drunk duck trying to take off, and the motion dispersed the fog for a second. The guy crawled away and disappeared behind a tombstone. My friends laughed and laughed and laughed. Whatever, I mumbled. I wasn't even scared. We found our way out of the cemetery after that and headed to the main attraction. The wait was longer than any other attraction at the farm because... It was allegedly the scariest of them all. The cream of the crop. Hell, after the scare I'd gotten at the cemetery, my expectations were pretty high for this one. And, eh, it was fine. I mean, there were guys in pretty realistic pig masks running after us with chainsaws, but even in the dark, I could tell the blades weren't actually moving. I didn't feel like I was in any real danger. Well, aside from the very real danger of possibly losing all blood circulation in my arm, when one pigman jumped in front of us and my friend grabbed me so tightly, my fingers went numb. She screamed. I just kind of stared at the pigman, unfazed. I half expected them to tell me to feed the pig. Not tonight, buddy. Not tonight. We drove home after that and chatted about our favorite parts of the night. You got so scared in the cemetery, taunted Jules. I huffed. (laughs) That dude startled the shit out of me. The car went silent. What guy? Someone in the backseat asked. The dude in the morph suit, I answered. Huh? He was crawling on the floor? I didn't see him. I shrugged. Well, it was foggy. We went back to chatting, and eventually I dropped everyone off at their places. I wasn't tired by the time I got home, so I booted up my computer and uploaded the photos we'd taken that night. Everything was pretty normal until we got to the cemetery, or rather, after the cemetery. The Morph guy was in the background of all the other photos I took, which was really strange to me, since I thought the mascots were supposed to stay in their attractions. They had these lame bios for their mascots on the website. I looked him up just to see. He wasn't listed. I felt a small knot in my stomach, but laughed it off. There were plenty of guests in the costumes. Maybe this was an annoying teenager having fun. At this point, I thought I heard a squirrel or something scratching at my bedroom window, but couldn't spare a glance. I was too busy staring dumbfounded at the website. I'd clicked on the venue map link. I noticed the distinct lack of a cemetery. The thought did occur to me that this was all intentional on the part of the people running the farm, a great way to get one last scare out of their guests after they're gone home. It was as easy as not drawing a cemetery on their little cartoon map, as simple as including it not on the list of attractions, as easy as omitting one spooky mascot from their character bios. I wish that were the case. I wish that when I looked out the window, I hadn't seen the figure in the morph suit staring back at me and then quickly skittering backwards across the yard and up my neighbor's roof. I wish he'd stopped crawling near whenever I blink or look away. Every time I focus on my screen to write another line, I catch him in my peripheral vision. He's at the window right now. I gave him a quick glance and he runs away. I can't help but worry. What'll happen when I close my eyes and fall asleep? I think I'll find out soon. I'm so tired, I, I can't keep my eyes open.